Hi, welcome. I like to sound jollier in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Don't see so so depressive. I know. Hi, welcome to. <laughs> Too outrageous. Here we go. Ready? Mm-hmm. Hi. No, that was too much. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha in LA. Hi! Hi, sweetheart. How are you? I am very good. Woohoo! Look at me. I am cleared up, no cold, no flu symptoms. Life is good again. Uh, Good for you. I caught your flu from across the continent, and I feel... (laughs) terrible so it's my oh, turn no. so last week you heard trisha coughing for an hour this week uh, it's my turn so <laughs> you know, i woke up this morning and i bought my ticket to see black panther oh just this morning there was still, <laughs> there was still tickets available? <laughs> sorry did you i'm sorry did you get a you got to jump on it already they, they're showing it Okay, so there's a contest, everyone, and Trisha won. Congratulations! No, no honestly, I was just thinking people were saying that they had they'd missed the boat in getting like weekend tickets for the first weekend because well, it's old in so New York, already. in New York, it opens on the 16th, but yeah. the theaters are showing on the 15th because they're like we can More make money. money. Yep, we're making money, and on the 16th, it's showing like every 20 minutes. Oh, shit. <laughs> That's a lot. 20 minutes uh, it's in 3d it's in 40 it's upside down it's 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 they're delivering it in every possible conceivable format uh, i'm really excited it looks great let's just be honest if it's not great i'm gonna I'm- say it's great so <laughs> you know um, i actually i'm really excited i bought it similarly i bought it for thursday night as well mm-hmm. thursday night at eight o'clock and i'm seeing it in this really nice theater here where the, it, it's um it's the Cinerama Dome, which is this like wonderful massive theater where the screen is just huge. Is that where you and I went? No, that was the ArcLight. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Well, it, it is ArcLight. It, it is an ArcLight actually. It, it is ArcLight. It's ArcLight Cinerama Dome. Yeah, and it's off oh. of um yeah, it's off the of Sunset. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the Cinerama Dome has got this massive dome cover. It's great. I don't usually go in it because there's I'm seeing movies that are a little bit more intimate, but I just really wanted to see. I wanted to see it there. And I, this is it. I bought the tickets and I text my sister and my friend Jess. And I was like, we have a date at this time. Put it in your calendar. Tickets have been purchased. Bye-bye. <laughs> I'm going with this group of 18 black men. We're all going to go together oh, and watch it. And we're going to be blackety black in that goddamn oh, <laughs> I love it. We're going to be mixed, man. This is my sister, who's not even a huge... I don't even know if she's even that... That I mean, I think she cares, and of course, Jess is a movie person. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be fun. I'm just excited for. It. I mean, it's it's the first of many viewings. So here's a, here's a question: Is there any way that this movie can get fair reviews from black critics? Is there any way? Oh, of course. You know which one? You you just ask Armand White. Remember I don't know who that is. Oh my God, Christopher, do your work. He lives in New York. Oh, he okay. is okay. So him no, and eight what I'm saying. Other people, no, he's the guy. If if there's a black movie that everyone loves, or I think his name is Ormond White, hates it. So I think he's the one. Like he's just that black guy that they 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 bring in to like hate movies. <laughs> I guess we're we're gonna have an, we're gonna have episodes before it comes out, but I, I do want to talk about 
or I want to alert people to the fact that there's going to be like a, a backlash to this movie. Like people, oh, for sure. they people will are already frothing at the mouth. It's going to be how it's the worst Marvel movie. It's the worst movie ever made. Like it's get ready that like Ryan Coogler should be chased out of Hollywood. You're going to hear every single thing and it's going to be hilarious because the movie's going to be fantastic. Oh, well, you know, Armand, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. The movie's going to be fantastic. Well, the reason why Armand Wright might hate it is he writes for the National Review. <laughs> well, isn't it a job to hate? Conservative ideals and viewpoints come down to just hating everything and hating progress and hating strike strike progress, but it's, hating kind of weird. Just well, because you know what Armand White wants you to know. Armand wants you to know that Justice League is much better than Star Wars. That's the kind of thing Armand White <laughs> does. Okay, sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I have a friend who um he's a music critic. And his entire career is just pretty much making really unpopular statements on social media and so people can come out of the woodwork. Like the other day, he said that the Spice Girls' third album mm-hmm. after Ginger Left was better than anything they did before. And I was like, okay, well, well sure. I don't know. And then they were saying one of the later Madonna albums was better than Like a Prayer. You know, Like a Prayer, <laughs> like the, the seminal album that was like, you know, was like one of the I best like pop people, albums though. of all time. And I was like, okay. I was like, you know what? I feel like if I, I mean, you have to do that. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. Think about it. If there's a crowd running in, in if there's a crowd running in one direction and you run to the opposite direction, everyone look looks like at you. You may look like a dick or everybody looks at you and goes, why is that guy running that way? And then there's at least a minimum interest, right? That's what it is. That's what that kind of response is about. But you run the risk. Of as I'm looking at you, I'm thinking you're an asshole. Like there's, but no you're still clue. looking. But the key piece is you're still looking at me. That mm. you've got you've got my attention right then and there. I'm gonna bring <laughs> I'm gonna bring this up a little later in the show because this this dovetails neatly into my topic. Uh, it does, guess, doesn't it? <laughs> I guess it's just that contrariness for the sake of being contrary. I find tedious and immature. I I just do, and maybe that's not fair. Like maybe this person really does think that like American life is better than like a prayer for Madonna albums. I mean, no one else believes that, but you know, maybe he does and he wants to advertise that. It's taste. It's taste. Yeah. There's no accounting for taste. That's for damn sure. Yeah. I mean, as long as you can defend it or as you can make a claim, a strong claim to it. And I'm convinced that you're not just being contrarian. Right. I mean, I think that's the problem though, is if you're known as a contrarian, then everything you do becomes unpalatable right it's like oh shit this person just i'm known as a picture it's it's on your you know it's weird (laughs) (laughs) i'm bill smith contrarian (laughs) you know there's some people who are just that (laughs) i mean isn't that what like ann coulter is and who's that other shriveled white man who has that show O'Reilly? Not O'Reilly. The one who's like liberal until he says the N-word on TV and then goes, oops, sorry, I was, you, were, you were offended. What's that guy's name? Bill Maher. Bill Maher. Yeah. Not- I can't believe you call them friends, but... They are um, friends. Are they? they are friends. Fl- yeah. Flips of the same coin? Really? Honey, they're doing, they have the same job. Job? <laughs> they have I the thought. same job. If you don't evaluate the words they're saying, the way that they say them is exactly the same thing. It's just being as provocative as possible. It's a career, though. I mean, it's a I mean, career choice. Sure, Amorosa, sure. All of those people. <laughs> All of those people, right? Um, Everybody's got to feed themselves. Everybody's got to pay their bills. 
I mean, you know, they, they withdraw from their soul to put it into their pocket. I guess that's that's a choice that oh my people gosh. make. It. I know. Well, I just feel like if that's how you want to go down. I'm not sure if I quite believe that. I mean, I have problems with Bill Maher, but I, 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 I dare say he makes a lot more sense than Ann Coulter. I don't know if you can evaluate that. Uh, don't, I don't, can, and I have. I know, not, <laughs> it's not about weighing the things Bill Maher says versus the things Ann Coulter says and like which ones I agree with. Because mm-hmm. for everything that I agree with the Bill Maher over Ann Coulter, there's someone who feels the opposite way. Sure. But, so for me, it's just really about the kind of not journalism, the not even punditry, the kind of performance that both of them put on is identical. Well, right? yes, I believe I believe they both are performance. They both perform outrage or perform um, mm-hmm. some sort of contrariness to um, popular opinion in a certain mm-hmm. way. However, I think that when I've listened to Bill Maher, he generally can cover it with more facts than Coulter can. That's been my experience of it. You know, mm-hmm. it'll be rare for Bill Maher to say, oh, my God, you know, you got to make sure you prevent those immigrants from coming in because they create they, you know, they perform more crimes. The, the facts don't bear that out. So he generally won't make that claim. Get him talking about religion, though. And uh... yes, that's that's what I'm saying. That's why I always <laughs> say mine. Religion is is his is tremendously his blind spot. Like yeah. that's that's one of the worst things that he can cover. He's just he's exactly Coulter esque when he talks mm-hmm. about religion. Coulter esque is Mar esque. Like I'm telling, they're the I'm same. I'm talking about thing. it indifferent. I mean, I'm talking about the. Listen, you're right. You're they're talking about content. I'm talking about performance. Yes, yes. You're okay. talking. About, they, they perform similarly, but I think in terms of content, I would give Bill a little bit more room to move in terms of the content. Feel free. He gets. Nothing. I will. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> Can't. Um, <laughs> all right, let's jump into some topics. So you uh, are going to present um, the curious story of H and M. Go for it. <laughs> well, it's not a curious story. So of course, H and M is embroiled in a controversy this week because an image from one of its advertising campaigns came across people's newsfeed. As usual, people respond in with outrage. So the image is of a little black boy, beautiful little black boy, in a green sweatshirt. And on the sweatshirt, it says, coolest monkey in the jungle. Ooh. I sort of noticed the, the green sweatshirt a little bit. And I was like, okay, what's the big deal? And then I focused in on the, the writing. And of course, you and I, immediately, you're saying, whoop. <laughs> right. Whoop. The question yeah. we're all asking is why was why did H and M not go? Oh, oh, that doesn't seem like a good thing to put on a sweatshirt with a black boy. And so everyone is there was a lot of outrage online. H and M issued an apology and removed the twi- the sweatshirt from its website. Of course, you know you can't remove anything from online, so the sweatshirt imagery is still making the rounds, but it's it's not on. H&M's website anymore. And um, they've apologized for sort of racial insensitivity. A few people have have dropped working with them. The weekend says that he's not going to be working with them. I guess he's one of he was one of the people, uh, musicians that were worked as a sponsor for H&M. Yeah. So he's and that sucks out. because he's cute. And then there was another artist, I think. This one was a white artist, G-Eazy. a white male artist. No, it was Jeezy. No, there's another white artist. There's a oh, white really? artist as well. So I can't remember that guy's name. He um, he pulled out of H&M ads as well. He said he found the whole thing offensive. And so, of course, you know, there's the usual dust up online, you know, how the hell could this have happened? Blah, blah, blah. And then it drew my, then it reminded me of the Dove campaign. You all remember the Dove campaign dust up a few months ago 
when similarly Dove decided to have a campaign where women were wearing t-shirts that were basically t-shirts of their own complexion. A dirt, no, well, it was a black woman wearing a dirty t-shirt. No, but no, actually the way the campaign was supposed to be, it was that each person was supposed to wear a t-shirt the exact same color of their skin. Okay. And then what you were supposed to, what it was supposed to say was that Dove was supposed to work on every skin, like every skin can take Dove. But in the way the campaign was executed and in the language being used, it looked as if when the black woman removed her t-shirt immediately underneath the black woman was a white woman. And it looked like you were saying Dove cleaned you up so much that you were no longer black. Interesting. I didn't know that. That that's that's how it was perceived online. I've since gone and read what the black woman, the black um, woman in the ad, how the ad was explained to her, and how the ad played out in the construction process. And so each person was supposed to actually turn into each other. So there's actually a campaign. There's actually supposed to be a part of it where, you know, there's supposed to be a part of it where the there's also an Asian woman, and it was supposed to flip up, and the Asian woman turns into a black woman. It's supposed to go on a cycle, mm-hmm. but it just so happens that the nature of where it was caught in the ad and in the cycle made it seem like this black person became white as a result of Dove. Mm-hmm. So you can immediately see why that would be so, that would strike people as kind of like uh tone deaf. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so people were sort of equally outraged then. And I think I saw every time, every time this happens, I see people say, you know what? We just need to have more people of color behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. We need to have more people of color in the advertising booth or in the advertising campaign because obviously they've missed the boat here. But I'm actually wondering if part of the work of these people isn't to actually generate outrage. Let's think about advertising in general, right? Nowadays, when you can kind of control your media consumption, you never really have to pay attention to an ad anymore, right? I mean, because it's like you can fast forward through them, mm-hmm. you, you're you Netflixing, you're streaming, you know, sometimes you can get streaming without ads. It seems weird. To, it's almost like when Madonna, you know, when MTV used to do music videos mm-hmm. and then and you wondered to yourself when they stopped showing videos, why artists still spent money doing music videos and then you, you know what I mean? I wonder that every day, actually. You know, yeah. I think about it with ads. I think about in a marketplace where ads are kind of like, kind of unnecessary. How do you get people's attention? It feels to me as if in some ways, generating controversy is a good way for people to actually begin to pay attention to your ad. So you're suggesting that this controversy itself is a marketing tactic in order to discuss products and services. I think so. I think it can be. And, and you know, initially I was like, hey, listen, because listen, I want to be, it can be, but I want to, I want to put a finer point on what you're saying. You're saying it's intentional that they're intentionally well, doing this. I mean, this is, this is my issue always. I believe that business people want to make money and I okay. believe, yeah, I think, listen, I think we all know that, right? <laughs> uncontroversial. But at the same time, I also believe that business people have been doing advertising for a really long time. This is a science. This is a science and they spend a lot of time and they spend a lot of money doing market research. So I know that they spend quite a lot of time figuring out whether an ad is going to work or not work. So it seems strange to me that we keep having these dust-ups, which is why I had to say to myself, is, it, is there more going on here? Is there more to this than meets the eye? Meets the you eye? can do something interesting here, right? And uh, the, you know, they're doing a lot of research to see if an ad would work or don't work. 
But given mm-hmm. what you're constructing, what does don't work look like? What does an ad that doesn't work look like then? Because I would say this ad doesn't work. It's not so much about the product they're selling. It's sort of like the trials and tribulations and foibles of the company. I know. What do you the, mean by that? What do you mean by that? I know there's the old adage that all publicity is good publicity. I'm not certain that that's always true. Like because at the end of the day, H and M is trying to sell you clothes. That's how they make mm-hmm. their money. Yeah. Right. You got to go in and you got to buy like their two ninety nine tank tops and their like four dollar pants or whatever the hell. This doesn't necessarily get me in the door to shop. And whether I'm offended or not, this doesn't impact me as far as attracting me to their brand or am I, or am I, or am I just being too individual in that? Maybe it does attract well, people I, to the brand. I, think I mean, I to, think be, to be too, fair, yeah. I've seen, I've said the phrase H&M like 50 times over the past already. Maybe. Well, this is the that. thing. Well, this is the thing. So here, so of course, then I was like, okay, let me just figure out, let me just go and do some research. What about, what is this thing? Maybe there is such a thing as controversial marketing. So I did, I went and did a little bit of reading on it and there is in fact, controversial marketing. And the way it works is that, first of all, the assumption in controversial marketing is that this is the perks of it. First, it captures your attention right away. Because in a media landscape, that's for damn sure. In a media landscape that's really, really crowded, so a controversy is one way for something to pique your interest, right? Then the second thing it does is it captures the eyes of the people you want. Because here what happens is you are controversially drawn to something. And if you don't care, you leave the room. So right then and there, now you have people in the room that care about your product right away for whatever the reason is. Because maybe, okay, maybe you might've lost a black audience right now, but you've captured someone else who finds that this is actually really funny and over the top and people's reactions are silly and and, and crazy, right? So what you have is you you basically, now you've created your brand in a sort of polarized way. Because again, what do we know about the current um, climate? People are polarized, right? And so, people, and so, so sometimes, and so by having a kind of polarized reaction, you sort of like, oh, you're part. Because remember, they're not just selling clothes. No one's just selling the thing that they're selling, right? They're selling ideas. They're selling a certain um, lifestyle. They're selling a certain sort of notion of themselves, right? So that's the idea. Then the third thing is that, especially for this current climate in terms of online, it's engagement. People are going to retweet it. They're going to talk about it. Guess what? They might even cover it on the news. And so now your ad becomes actual content for other media environments going further than it ever could if they had pay- if you had paid advertising dollars now, for that. That third part is the only part that sounds salient to me. Because yes. the other parts that you stated, like as far as the polarization mm-hmm. of, of the public. Yeah. I imagine there are people who are very offended, so offended that they are going to withdraw from H&M. I imagine there are so many people who think this is so funny and now will shop at H&M because they'll see it as H&M taking a st- whatever, whatever they, yes. but I feel like those people are two standard deviations out, which means like some 94% of the people, their behavior as it comes to H&M products will not change. It will remain but, the same. So I mean, then the third the piece, that, yeah, the third piece that I think is the most salient, which is that yes, H&M, the word like H&M as a brand has been carried now to every part of the world. And even people who are just walking by a newsstand have seen the words H and have seen H and M, 
even if it's not connected to this whole racist brouhaha. Mm-hmm. I will say, you know, H&M has been in hot water before about this kind of thing. It was last year or the year before where they, um, in H&M South Africa didn't have any black models. And then their tone deaf response was that, well, white models convey a more positive image, which is what we're going for <laughs> at H&M, which again, could no one have looked at that statement and been like, you know what, maybe we shouldn't say this. And then a, a lesser known controversy was years ago in Canada, they were selling like these leather headdresses mm-hmm. in Canadian stores, but people complained that it was um, insulting to the Aboriginal people in Canada. H&M is, is, they're not a stranger. This isn't their first quote unquote mistake, exactly. which brings us back to your initial musing. How do you guys end up here more than All once? the time. And which means, like, you know me, what I mean? Yes. Which tells me on some level, there's a bump up to generating controversy to 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 getting people to talk about your product that would never get a chance to even mention it. And but one of the things that people are also sensitive to is that these boycotting things really fade very quickly. You know, sustained boycotting if they, campaigns. If they materialize uh, at all, I think exactly, people will say you know, they're gonna boycott. Say they're gonna, exactly. But, and, you know, I, but I think one of the things that HM and I think one of the things that people are doing and recognizing, or I think companies are recognizing, is that in some ways you can have a social media experience of a brand that ultimately benefits the brand. And one way that you do that is by generating controversy, or at least in their minds, the reality behind controversial marketing is that you want to generate strong emotion in people. You are just describing the internet. But basically. that's but 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 think about the internet. If that's your landscape, if your ads aren't running on TV or how do you how do you come how do you let things stand out in the noise that is the internet? I mean, no, let's listen. Just, I'm let not me disagreeing just, with let you. Let me just cast our eyes back to the last presidential campaign, right? That's exactly oh. what happened. I mean, well, I hate to say it, but that's the model. The model is that you take you do something controversial that just becomes news and fodder for everyone to talk about. Well, we were just talking about this with Ann Coulter and Bill Maher. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This, that is their brand, right? It doesn't That's matter what they're saying. It's just they, they say it loudly and indignantly and people tune in. In terms of mm-hmm. brands, I think Dove, because Dove had, had sort of built this entire campaign about being responsive to how real women were. I think they were able to use that goodwill. That's what I meant. They were able to use that goodwill to push back on people perceiving it as a kind of malicious intent, right? Let's, in that ad. But I think in the end, it ended up being a, a positive overall for Dove. Like it, it, it raised the, um, it, it brought more eyes to the campaign, but then they had a history and a legacy of being like, oh, we're really pro-women. And then it was, they were able to circle back around with an apology that in. In, probably in some sense, grew their market share even more. Because then you go back and you're like, oh, but no, they've had a history of being so sensitive. Because I've had interactions with people who said that about them. That, oh my God, they have such a history of being sensitive so that this controversy, while sort of distressing initially, was immediately forgotten because they had shown such thoughtfulness in the past. I want to focus in on the sweatshirt itself. So the the mother of the model has yeah. come out and said she doesn't think it's a big deal, which yeah. has caused in some circles people are really like, oh my God, oh my God. But I just want to point out, because this is the thing that, I don't know, I'm still struggling with the idea that this is an intentional marketing tactic. While it makes sense, everything that I know about the internet and everything that I know about branding nowadays, I just, the idea that corporations are going this route, I find 
upsetting. Uh, Why? Is, uh, What's upsetting about because what, what, what it's only going because it's only going to ramp up and get worse. They're going to have to say more and more controversial things. So H and M is a Swedish company, and it's not an American company. And I think sure. that I think that means something. I think I think about that as far as this mother's concerned of the model. You know, she's like, I don't see what the big deal is. I was at the photo shoot. I saw it. I didn't think it was a big deal. I just want to point out that her raising her son in Sweden and being Swedish is a really different experience of black people here. So on one level, I know people want to drag this woman for not being up in arms. On another level, I was like, let's stop exporting American racism to every corner of the globe. Like racism here is monstrous. In other places, it it can be bad, but it's also very different. wonder if by pushing our outrage to every corner of the globe, like from an American perspective, is not is not perpetuating these ideas of Black people that they didn't have previously. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Totally disagree. Because one of the things that's um, interesting to me about how racism plays out internationally, particularly, I mean, I think this is one of those moments where I've been noticing it with um, athletes, like Black athletes who play in um, foreign countries, Italy, um, and this this happens around soccer. They understand the use of animalistic jargon against Black people. They really do. Because when they want to insult Black athletes in foreign countries, they throw bananas at them and they make monkey noises and animal sounds. <clears throat> so I believe that the animalistic conception of black or the conception of black people as animals is universal huh now is it is it um is it as egregious and as deeply embedded as it is in the united states where there's like a whole system of white supremacy that that like that sort of calcified this in in laws and jim crow and all of those things is it the same probably not there's not a large enough black population not probably not country. no but no but i'm just gonna say yeah just take away from what you're saying Mm-hmm. When it comes to this particular gaffe or non-gaffe, depending <laughs> on where yes. you fall down this issue, perhaps. But I guess it got me thinking about the Dutch tradition around Christmas of Black Pete. Yes, I know. And this is a little bit more nuanced than the the monkey thing that we're discussing because I agree with you. Like I think that is something that kind of crosses lines, crosses uh, as far as our understanding of Black and African descended people. But, you know, the, so if you don't know, in Dutch culture, when Santa Claus brings the presents, he's got all these, like, his elves actually come with him and they go down into the chimney to either, like, prepare the way or bring the presents for Santa. They basically, they're like interns for Santa. And um, as they go through the chimneys, they have soot covering their faces. And so they're black. So when they do, like, their Christmas marches and everything, they have people dressed up like Black Pete and they have, like, black, they basically have black, like, makeup on to make their skin look black. And this was seen as racist and the fact that it was blackface and whatnot. And Dutch people were in general bewildered because they do not have a history of minstrel shows or blackface or portraying black people in that way that black Pete is not an African descendant person. But anyway, I, that's what I got. It got me thinking like, are as we raise the alarm about these things, I don't know. You know, and we probably should. I just wonder when we push it to every corner of the globe if we're not just advancing the negative message as well. I mean, this comes back to my pet idea of information as virus, right? There's no way to communicate why this is incorrect and wrong 
without then throwing out the wrongness out to the world for them to consider and chew on as well. Well, I mean, the other things, it is, I mean, it's a problem of uh, information, right? But I, I think one thing that Americans get far more credit for and should is that whether it's whether we do it in a in a good way or not, we do confront racism. We talk about it. Mm-hmm. We um we push back on it. We have conversations about how it can change and things like that. When we talk about um in other contexts, it rare there's just not a lot of pushback. Because even when you were presenting this case, it's like, oh well it's in Sweden. But let me tell you something. We talk, we talk about the general far-right movements in European countries, mm-hmm. but we never talk about the basis of where this movement is. And we never talk about the fact that in so many of these places people are very pro-Swedish, pro-this, pro-that. They, they have not confronted their colonial past and the legacies of that. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways it's because maybe we have a Black pop, maybe it's because we, there are a lot of Black people here. And so we bring these things up and we actually had slavery in the country. So it's always a part of the discussion. But in those countries, they have their own sort of racialized, colonialized mentality too. And if you dig deep enough into some of these issues, like you did with the Dutch issue, you start to find out, hmm, this has a little bit of a colonialism element, but it's just not talked about because mm-hmm. I think the numbers aren't there. I, so I, I would sort of hold off on saying we're pushing things to corners. I think maybe we're pushing the interpretation mm-hmm. because it's very Americanized interpretation um, to foreign corners. But I think foreign countries have their own very strong racialized identities that they don't confront. Mm-hmm. And, and histories. I mean, and, and histories. And, and you know, and that's I part of the, the challenge the of the that, refugee crisis, right? The There's way that they confront or not confront that can be alien to us here. Just like the way yeah. that we confront and not confront our racial issues are alien to a lot of Europeans that I talk to about these issues. There's this sort of like, it goes up and over their head, but then like, you know, get a French person talking about Algerians and then it's yes. like, oh, you're like, wow, what? Then, exactly. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then it's like listening to a Trumper, yeah. honestly. Do you know? And so what you have to do is you just have to push the right buttons. And so mm-hmm. that that I think is really interesting is like there's this perception that Europe is so much freer about it. Mm, let me just push back on a couple things here. Let's push a couple buttons here and you're going to get some Racism of those ideas. It is different. I hope everyone can understand that of now. Course like, that. Of country course that. Different. different. I don't I think some people expect it to be absent or the same. People perceive it as absent most of the time because they're not forced to confront it. But as soon as the numbers... Well, because they don't confront it in a familiar way. In a familiar way. But as soon as the numbers rise, it becomes really compelling. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think about it even in France. Like, this, I mean, think about some of their national figures. How do you think they're doing in terms of dealing with people and education and their immigrants? And do you know what I mean? Like, you I, know, I honestly don't you know? know. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, yes, having hung out with a couple Algerians and you in France when I was there, you start talking to them and they could be describing the African-American experience, honestly. Mm-hmm. But the perception is not the same, right? Because, you know, it's Paris is a place for Black people to escape. Um, but you're Gorgeous escaping Black as a, people. Oh, my God. I know. But you're escaping as a tourist. Mm-hmm. And you're escaping with new ideas and different ways of perceiving yourself in that space. In wrapping this up, I want to ask you this question. So this controversial marketing, I'm just going to ask, is it going to get worse? Which is such a softball question because I think the answer is yes. Yes, it will. 
But I feel like we ask this question so often on this show, but what do we do about this? Like, how do we push the tide back on this particular kind of media, this new media? Oh, can you answer this? It's a strange thing for you to ask though, Chris. What is the point of marketing? First and foremost, let me ask you that. To sell. And then, and so to expose, right? And so you have to think about every single environment that selling has to happen. Right. And so in the current environment, how do you think that you get exposure? How do you think you get people to know what you're selling? Exactly the way that we're talking about. Exactly. Like, it answers itself. You have to itself. put yourself in front of people. You have to put people in front. Yeah. It answers itself. Right. So when you ask yourself, is it going to get worse? It, I mean, it just depends. Right. If, if, you're, if your goal is to sell to people, to raise attention, you've got to recognize that the marketplace is really flooded with a lot of ideas. There are lots of competing ideas. How does your idea come out at, on top? How does that happen? Either you're going to have to generate love, anger, something has to bring it to the forefront for folks. I, I, would, I would like to say, I can't say it. I'd like to say hey. this, was an, this was an honest mistake that, you know, you get enough people in a room and you get too many yes men together and something like this happens. I have a friend who's a big mucky muck in marketing. And he told me how that Pepsi Kendall, Kylie, mm-hmm. crazy yeah, Jenner. Kardashian, how that, yeah. Uh, how that whole thing went down. And he said that the, the people in-house, they didn't use their marketing people to do it. They, didn't, they did it in-house, mm-hmm. which means that someone came for the idea. Everyone around them said, that's a great idea. And mm-hmm. no one checked him. And then the whole thing unfolded and that they were as surprised by the public. They were very surprised by the public's outcry against it because everyone who was inside the project just thought this would be great. Because they, they saying, right. Were they all white people? Um, that, I, that I don't know. But the point is, I mean, and I don't, I guess what I'm, I'm pushing back against is that uh, I don't want to live in the world where people are, are sitting in a room being like, okay, let's put a little kid. In a no, I don't. I, you know, it's so funny, right? Like, I mean, it sounds it sounds maniacal, right? It sounds maniacal. Um, you're, you, because 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 you know why? Because the thing about it is, the one thing that we always make people understand, or at least attempt to make people understand in this podcast, is everything is constructed. Because everything is constructed, mm-hmm. there's a lot of thought that goes into every part part of it. So the question becomes: When it's a construction project process, where does it break down? Does it break down in the idea stage? You know, do people all feel equally capable of saying mm, that's going to be wrong? I mean, I think ten. I, my tendency to believe is to believe that not everyone feels comfortable raising objection when the room is fully swayed in one direction. Sure, you know, not everybody that's, feels. That's you know what I mean? Think that's an established, observed effect. But also in the sense that your your power in the room, like, do you have the power to say this is flawed? Do you know what I mean? Like, that's the question. It's like, yeah. maybe it's not just so much groupthink, which is, you're right, it's a real process. But if you have some power, maybe you are the one to say, mm, guys, think about this. You know, that's, I think that's what people generally think happens when these campaigns go down. They're like, oh no, it's just a mistake. I wanted to offer an alternative point of view, which is that these controversies are feeded and useful and that it's actually an approach. I think it's been very useful. I think I can't argue with you there. I think H&M got a lot of press. They'll continue to get a lot of press. 
I had visited the H&M website. I visited the H&M Facebook page. Uh, I read their apology and I looked at the comments underneath. Mm-hmm. I urge everyone to not do that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> do not do it. And I'll leave it there. <laughs> okay. Nowadays. Oh my God. Never read the comments. That's what we should call this show. Uh, okay. So uh, I want to talk about another piece of media construction today. I want to talk about uh, the Golden Globes. You know, I love an award show. Mm. No, you don't. <laughs> God, I mean, you don't have to go to Pornhub if you want to see a group of people in a room jerking each other off. Just look at any award show. Uh, the Golden Globes were no exception. A lot of people won. A lot of people didn't. There was a lot of great firsts at that, actually. Aziz, uh, Aziz Ansari was the first Asian person to win in his category. It, and I'm it, happy about it, even though he's a very poor actor. But And even though I don't like that show. Uh, but oh my god! Yeah. We have to talk about your dis- your dislike of that show in a future podcast. I just I can tell you about it right now. I saw two episodes. I didn't laugh once. I said I have other things to do, and I moved on with my life. So notice um, the first season. Yes, and I know the second season. People are like, "Oh my god, you have to watch that." I cannot believe you gave the show with people of color just two episodes. Okay, not being judged. Anyway, my topic is. <laughs> Um, As everyone knows, Oprah gave a stirring speech at the Golden Globes just about her being the first Black woman to receive the award, which I think was a Lifetime Achievement Award. What that, what it meant to her to see Black women winning previous awards and what it might mean to little girls watching. Also, she put powerful men on notice saying that their time was up, getting a standing ovation from the room and a feverish sweaty response from the rest of the world, mostly on the internet, who who ran to their keyboards and grabbed their phones and breathlessly typed Oprah 2020, Oprah for president, <laughs> Oprah, save us, which I uh, couldn't deal with. My problem with this is, oh, I have so many problems with this. There's several layers here. The first layer is that Oprah is a black woman we are constantly begging black women to save us from the mess that we create. You know, black, the black community in particular, <laughs> black community relies on black women to straighten out the mess of black men. On top of that, the general culture, this is sort of like a thing. It's the mammy thing. Like, oh, Oprah's here. She'll fix up the, the mistakes of this white president. So that's a sub-level, right? But that's not even the point I want to talk about. There is a problem that we have in this country with the rise of reality TV, celebrity, and the internet, where that basically anyone who can get a standing ovation or who can be charming in a two-minute speech, we want to, we raise our eyebrow and ask, are they ready for higher office? Now, we can get into Trump and all of that, and we will, because I think it's relevant here. But my point is, is that at what point did we decide that experience in politics or elected office was no longer necessary to run the country. I think this is a really dangerous slide, this slide towards totalitarianism and dictatorship, which sounds super dramatic until you notice that where we are today, right? There is something about glorifying celebrities. There's something about wanting them to rule us, which I think is very problematic. At some point, if this continues In 2024 and beyond, you're going to have to be Tom Hanks level famous in order to run for office. And that's going to benefit nobody. I guess my question is this. 
One, I want to hear about your whole experience, the Oprah for Presidents thing. Because the whole next morning, I had to spend all morning on Facebook hosing down these white people who are far too excited. Um, I think this is the way that democracy dies, in that we want to give our responsibility up as citizens, as citizens who should inform themselves about who best to run the government. Um, I think giving that over to someone who is just very popular is dangerous. I think the creeping narrative over the past couple of decades that government itself is corrupt, politics are bad, and politicians are two-faced, hypocritical, and evil, I think that is also damaging to our democracy because there's only one place to go. If we can't trust our elected officials, who can we trust? And then we end up knocking on Oprah's door, knocking on Trump's door. Who knows who's next? Sally, Jesse, Raphael. I don't know. Whoever can get us to moan in pleasure for, for a particular in a particular speech or appearance. I think that this is the real danger to the country. I'm always jumping up and down on this podcast talking about how we need to cancel the internet, how it's killing us all. But this is a shining example. This kind of celebrity worship isn't going to get us anywhere. But what do you think about any of that? I mean, I watched the speech. So I was in the, I was watching the award show. It was a good speech. I was watching the the speech within the context of the award show. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I watched the speech and I really loved the speech. And I thought to myself, it's going to be great because she um, name checked Tracy Taylor. So people are going to go and read that book about that African-American woman who survived that brutal rape and had just only died like she only died like 10 days previous. So, you know, those are, you know, I'm cop- I'm keying in on those elements, right? I'm keying mm-hmm. in on the fact that this is like a media moment. And so that writer is going to get some, you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> some legs, right? And so I'm I'm keying on that. And then I'm also keying on the fact that Oprah is able to do that thing that she does so well, which is to take a, an experience that a lot of people have and package it in a way that leaves you hopeful, right? Because the thing about the award show, let me just talk about this in the context of the award show. The, the award show was really awkward. You know, it was a, it was don't get really, me started. I think every award show is awkward, but anyway. it, every award show is awkward, but this one particularly so because you're trying to celebrate an industry that recently revealed itself to be basically an industry filled with men who had been exploiting women for years. Mm-hmm. So there was so much like discomfiture in everyone. They had to sell glamour which is traditionally very easy for Hollywood to do, but it was impossible to do it that night because the dark side of Hollywood had been public, had had the public's attention for the past few months, right? So how do you get up there and try to glamorize and sell something woohoo, hopeful and happy when we realize that 50% of the population in Hollywood, all the women were being exploited? And then you have Oprah who gets up there and sort of confronts this issue head on. You know, she and she gives you context for what happens and then she creates a path for you to get out of it, right? She tells mm-hmm. you, she she gives you um Reese's story, which is sad and horrific and like the natural extension of where the the sort of brutish behavior of Hollywood men would lead. She gives you that and then she tells you that that woman survived and triumphed, mm-hmm. right? So she gives you this path, right? She was a victim she triumphed. None of the men ever had any uh, experience, any consequences for raping her. However, she still pushed. She made a legal push. So that in some ways she's giving these women a narrative 
for you to think through this current moment, right? Mm -hmm. So that's like, that's so effective. And that's exactly what Oprah does, right? And so you're leaving this, like, this is a jubilant, joyful speech. But the other thing that's so important in the speech was how much she was talking to individual women and people to say, you have a responsibility. You Mm -hmm. have, (laughs) you can claim some um, agency in this moment. So for me, it was really quite striking to then have people respond afterwards with let Oprah save us, which is in direct contrast to the content of her speech. Like it was indirect. (laughs) She just told us that we as individual women can run for office. We can do this. We can push back on these narratives. We could do that. We could, we can take strength in our numbers. She was just talking to us in some ways. She was actually giving almost a civic lesson. Mm-hmm. So how is it that a woman who had just spent this time giving a civic, a rousing civic lesson then ends up being perceived as like the ultimate savior, thereby not needing for us to even exercise our own civic duty like that was the to me that was the first that was my takeaway i was like this is really ridiculous she just told you to take responsibility for your life take responsibility for the things that are happening so what do you make what do you make of that switch how does that where did that switch happen for people that's that switch happens because people are lazy and people feel like (laughs) lay it out trisha damn people are lazy and what they want as much as they were excited by what oprah had said in her speech they want her to do it for them because what they want to do is they want to buy Oprah wholesale, just like they bought Trump wholesale, but they want to buy Oprah wholesale because their assumption is if, if she has these ideas, then if we put her in charge, then all of these ideas will necessarily trickle out from the openness of being president, right? That's the assumption, right? The assumption, because that's what I think people are psychologically buying into with Trump. Whether he was good at his job or not, I think they assume that the sort of like cultural message he was sending was going to be trickling out throughout the presidency, right? That's mm-hmm. the assumption, right? Like the whiteness that he was sending, all of those things. So my whiteness was going to matter again. All of those things were embedded in the in the sort of subtext for Trump. Not even subtext, the actual context. I think but the also, same thing is the, is assumed with Oprah. Like also people want to buy a package. Also in the subtext is that government isn't hard, governing isn't hard, and charisma is the top skill necessary. There's something about that that I find well, I don't know if it's, dark. I think the assumption because how could I it think, not be that? I had to take seriously an article talking about should the Rock run for president a couple of months ago. Well, listen, I think one and of the things there. I think one of the things that you are misunderstanding is is it's not that people don't think that it's difficult. I really don't think that that's what it is. I think what people are doing is people are keying into the fact that in order for people to run for the presidency, there is there's a need to have a lot of money and the ability to gain eyes immediately. They recognize that running for the presidency requires that you have an existing brand. That is what they're keying into. I don't believe that they're keying into the fact that it's easy. That's not a misunderstanding on my part, because what you said is parallel to what I'm saying. That is true. What you said was true. But also running for president is not the same as governing. 
And the thing that running for president has taken the cake, has taken all the attention and not the governing piece, I think there is definitely something to that. We're very concerned about who could win, who could get into office, and less about what they could do or how they'd even go about doing it. Because it's about electing a man who had no policy plan. Because, because at the end of the day, people are acknowledging the fact. Listen, I know nobody wants to talk about this, but it is extremely expensive to run for president. It's extremely expensive. If you can start out ahead of the game by having people know who you are, that's huge. There's no need to introduce you. There's no need to have this like... That you can do shorthand. That's I'm why celebrity. I don't disagree with that. I know. That's why celebrity. Listen, we've all. Okay, I get your point. You're right. What's happened is that there is a kind of breakdown. There's a breakdown in in sort of the understanding that this person is running for president because they're going to execute policies. Right mm-hmm. now, unfortunately, we don't spend. I think you can solve a lot of problems if the way that we allowed presidents to campaign change. So in fact, what you have are the public recognizing that we're not going to change the way people campaign. Imagine if in the next presidential election, all media companies agreed to this. It is going to be essential for these people to explain their platform, explain how they're going to pay for it, Mm -hmm. and explain how it's going to have a direct impact on the everyday American. Mm -hmm. Just those three conditions would necessarily change who people believe would run for president or should well, run for president. would also introduced, if that's what we showcased, they would also introduce that those things are important. Because what are we saying? Like in this broadcast environment, yeah. the things that we talk about, but also the way that we talk about them is extremely instructive. So if, yeah. we, if we had challenged the president yeah. in, while he was running to be like, if someone had stopped all the bombast and was like, Mr. Trump, please – America needs to know what you're going to do for them and how you're going to do it. Just the insistence on that point would have been instructive to people. What I'm saying is that we don't insist on that at all anymore. Like well, the idea that governing, the yes. governing difficult or a process, throw that right out. We don't have it anymore. And I think that's where that's, we're going to get into trouble. We can hire celebrities all day long. And if they have policy platforms, I'm ready. But I don't think we even think that's important anymore. I think that's the point. We, it's not that we don't think it's important. I think what we real, what people are acknowledging is that policy platforms do not make up the content of how a campaign is covered. That is what we're acknowledging. It's not that they're not important, but we're acknowledging that in some ways we have, we exist in a media landscape where policy and how we're going to pay for things and how things are going to be executed is not interesting enough for either the reporters or the consumer or 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 the citizenry. The consumer, because, I like how you went there before you got well, to because citizen. because that's who citizens are now. They're consuming information. You know, I mean, even local news, like even lo- even now, even as we're talking about policy decisions that get made now in this presidency, it is very difficult to get a reporter to actually break down how it's going to impact constituents. You know, like, because- Because that's, that's a hard story to, to sell and make sexy sell. and make exciting. Or even like, for example, the tax plan, right? They called it a tax overhaul, which was, which was a gift to the administration in the language. Mm-hmm. Instead of actually saying this new tax structure mm-hmm. is going to have this impact on your life, right? In this way. That's what you should do as a news person. 
That's, I mean, can you imagine covering the weather and not telling how the weather is going to impact you as you go out about your day to go to work? Mm-hmm. That's just, that's irresponsible, right? Like we understand that. But well, for any uh, but, other larger issue, you don't do it. Stick there for a second. It's not irresponsible. It's just, it's nonsensical. Yeah, it like, doesn't make sense. Look at that broadcast. You're like, that doesn't make sense. But we don't have the same reaction when it comes to governance and governing. I, I like the points that you're making, but the points that you're making are about a campaign and running a campaign and winning a contest. Like, I get that. But I think the attention that we that we lay on that and not the attention of what would come after, I mean, we're living that out in real life right yep. now, right? Yep. It, listen, government's complicated. And people don't like complication. There's a whole bunch of reasons why that is in our current age, in the 2020s as we approach them. There's a whole reason why we don't like complication. A lot of things you said is that when it comes to our media environment, if you don't get it fast, you're not going to be getting it. The way that the media and journalism has been confronting the fact that they have to sell papers and they have to cover the government is to make the government seem as simple as possible. It's as simple as winning a race, as simple as winning a popularity contest. And I think in this way, it's going to be really damaging to our democracy. It's going to be damaging to our history and our legacy because there's nowhere to go. If we think that, if if we really think that Ben Carson can run freaking housing and urban development and Betsy DeVos can do secretary of education, Donald Trump can be president, then where does that leave us? We need a civics lesson. Everybody needs to understand how these things play out. Although I think right now, to be honest, is a really great teachable moment because what's happening is that a lot of these institutions are being savaged. Ed is being Department of Ed. Mm. Cut, 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 cut. Uh, Environmental protection. Cut, 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 cut. Part of it is that people don't actually know what those spaces do. I mean, people are leaving these departments in droves. Nobody understands that. I mean, their numbers are dwindling every day. They're just these institutions. They're these offices that don't have all the people that they need. But for now, we can't see it. And it's actually parallel to what happens when Trump bought like a casino. Like the outside looks great. Everybody's like the pictures. And then you start looking on the, at the CD underbelly of it. And that's why most of those things ended up in bankruptcy court. It was pretty to look at from the outside. But then it over a dump. It was a dump. And over time, it's like, you know, and so I think in some ways, I mean, I hate to say it, but I think that's what's ha- that's what's going to happen with the country. Like over time, I think, you know, you know, it takes people a time to see to see everything, to see what's what's in the details. I think in about two to three years, everyone's going to look around and go, wait a minute, whatever happened to this thing we used to do? There's nobody there to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just like we can't attend to that right now. And I mean, you're right. I don't really know if we're going to be able to pick it up. And maybe I think, you, I think your point about Oprah being president and that Oprah 2020, it's really about, it's not so much about governance. You're right. They're not focusing on governments. They're focusing on her winnability. Mm-hmm. That's what they're saying. And that's all, that's all I've ever seen. Any, I haven't seen anyone talk about her platform. I haven't seen anyone talk about what she could Platform? <laughs> no, what, they, what they're really, what they've really no spent. Cares. Yeah. No, but you know, it's not that they don't care. It's that they, listen, everybody wanted Hillary to do well. Right. But, the thing about Hillary was, what is it? Was it? Was it? Um, was she going to nail it out of the park? Was she? Is it winnable? Mm-hmm. That becomes the thing. Is this? Is this thing winnable? You know, that's what they're admitting. At least is like getting you up and out of your house <laughs> to go to the polls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
They're conceding well, that the campaign is the most important thing. Well, this is what I'm going to say. Um, America, our time is up. That's, <laughs> what else is there to say? If, if we do not advance the narrative that governing ourselves is important, um, I know. then I don't know where that leaves us. I, I love to bring this up because I love this story. It's about a bygone America and some creatures who were Americans back then. We, we can't fathom this now. The Lincoln-Douglas debates. Lincoln and Douglas had seven debates um, that lasted hours and were extremely well attended. And they they used language today that would stupefy high school students, right? And people sat through the whole thing and were able to take that in and make decisions about who they were going to support. I can't, I mean, I can't imagine such a process now. You know, they, these men talked about their policies for slavery, exactly what they were going to do, how they were going to do it, how it would affect different departments, how it would affect individual citizens, and on top of slavery, other issues of the day. I just, well, we've gotten so far from that. And not only can it not be a good thing, I'm saying it's a really bad thing. And with the speed at which everything goes, it's accelerating into being a, a detrimental thing to the point where I'm not sure we can come back from it at some point if we go too far. Well, listen, I doom and gloom, doom and gloom. That's me. Go. No, personally, though, personally, I I'm of the mind that we have become a people. I don't know. I don't know. Americans or whatever you want to call it. A people that needs to live it before we can take it seriously. Like, I think as much as we've talked about the idea that governance is important. Mm hmm. I think we don't know what to do unless we don't have it. No, I know. <laughs> I mean, that sounds harsh, no, but that's Trish, the thing. Too dramatic to be. We, no, no, we're not. But listen, we're not a people that really keys into prevention. We just don't. We don't key into prevention. Every one of us is operating like we're a teenager. We just don't want to. We think we're going to live forever, right? That's the whole idea. But I mean, the, it's really difficult, I think, for people to imagine ends unless i mean it's a lack of imagination i don't know where why this has happened but we have fundamentally yielded to this idea that we can't imagine what it would be like if this such and such a thing happened so it's almost like every person is daring us to just execute this the reality well not everybody needs health insurance but let's see what it's like if no one has it do you know what i mean it's hard i don't it's, know where that is. i don't know where that comes talk from about being lazy though talk about being lazy this is it's just part and parcel of the same problem in that we're we're too lazy and too immature as a people as a culture god it hurts me to say that we're too immature as a culture to really think about the complexity of our choices so instead everything gets resort Everything comes to a binary situation. We either have or we don't have, and then we have to see what it's like. Like, see what it's like. We have to see what it's like. No, I mean, I, I mean, really... is, that, we, is that is that is that the thing? Up note, because that sounds terrible. Say something well, positive I mean, about this, because <laughs> well, I can't. Well, I mean, I mean, in what scenario is love? Right, love is one of those areas where you have to see how you feel about it. You can't not do it. I'm just gonna have to fall in love and see how it is. So there's there's the, there's the Again, assumption, right? Too dramatic to be useful. <laughs> I mean, 
That's too dramatic, the comparison of that. Love, falling in love, falling in love is not the same as like, well, should children have health care? Let's see. That's not the same thing. (laughs) For some people it is. It's 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 like a lot of There's no way. There's no way out of no, this. No, Sorry, listeners. What? There's no way we can. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. You know what? Okay. You know what it is. This is the thing. We're all undereducated about the role of government in our lives. That's really what it comes down to. We're undereducated. We're undereducated. I mean, once we got rid of civics education, it was really. Di- it's, it was always going to be really difficult. So that's really what has happened here because people don't actually know what government does. It's really easy for them to be talked into the idea that government does nothing useful. Mm-hmm. That's really where we are, right? No one's made a case for government. In a weird way, I almost feel like we're gonna we're gonna come back around to this idea of like, hey, what if instead of this one lone individual that we count on, that we actually get representatives for us? So that we don't always have to know every single thing, but we've got to make sure that the representative is um, smart and knowledgeable. Oh, yeah. You mean like the representational government that we were supposed to be practicing? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it, it sounds really strange, but I think I think we might actually whip back around mm-hmm. to the very thing that we had abandoned. That's my hopeful thing about it, is that people come to realize that it's impossible for them to know everything. It's just too much. And that they will look to somebody else and maybe potentially yield to the idea of an expert again. Yield to the idea that somebody Mm -hmm. else might know more than I and being okay with that. So that instead of you wanting to just have a beer with your representative, you basically said, I don't give a shit what beer you you drink. I just want to make sure you know this thing. Yeah. My kid needs braces. Can I pay for it or not? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't give a shit. (laughs) You know, because I think there comes a time when that happens. You know what I mean? You buddy, 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 and then you come back around and you say, listen, I don't really care. This thing that I really want isn't happening. Can you fix that? That's my hopeful strain, is that we come back around to recognizing that we need experts. We need experts at what they do. We need an expert surgeon. We need an expert teacher. We need an expert. Well, that's your hopeful stance. My stance is that we need scale armed revolution <laughs> that's that's what i'm saying i i am not gonna wait till they strip everything away from people in this country until they deport everybody before i go hey wait a minute you have to keep pushing I, back at it you have to keep pushing I'm, at back i'm at letting it. you know right now everyone <laughs> i have been preparing me for a revolution for decades and i i'm ready to go okay in contact let's talk because this shit is gonna get worse and it's gonna get worse fast um so we're gonna end on that on that doom, doom and gloom let's talk about media recommendations which is something that you've seen heard read or experienced you think other people should see here read or experience what do you got I'm going to go easy. I'm going to do two. I'm going to do a pro and an anti. Oh, we haven't had an anti in a while. Oh, Oh, I love these because they're so fucking shady. Okay. Anti-recommendation. I saw three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. I know you were going to anti this. Oh, my God. This piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Chimisha, um, the microphone's not picking up your tone. Could you... (laughs) I'm not certain how you feel 
about the movie. This movie, uh, first of all, I'm just going to say the content is piss poor. The story is about a, a, a mother who's outraged that um, the rapist and killer of her daughter has not been found by the local police. So she, it starts right away. So I can just set that up. So she puts up three billboards, essentially challenging the local police to find her daughter, her daughter's killer. And the town reacts poorly. As poorly. Mm-hmm. Okay. But let me provide the context for who the town people are and who the police are. The police are admittedly racist. They casually mention the fact that they are, um, they practice police brutality always. Mm -hmm. They demonstrate police brutality in every single one of their interactions. Mm -hmm. However, I, the audience member is supposed to just ignore the police brutality elements and pay attention to them as human beings. That's the central conceit of the movie, which is that I am supposed to put their police brutality aside to key into the story. I'm a Black person, so it's going to be impossible for me to put the police brutality aside, okay? It is who they are as people. So that conceit in the filmmaker that makes them think that I'm going to be able to go, huh, he's a really brutal cop, but he's kind of cute. He's really going through some problems. No, that's not going to happen. So essentially, I think this movie is rests on the assumption that police brutality is simply a character development trait. So I am like, I'm morally offended by the movie. I think it's sloppy. I think there's no character development in any way that's interesting. I think the execution of the story is poor. And I am astonished that it won Best Picture. And actually, it won everything. It won Best Picture. It won Best Actress. It won Best Supporting Actor. Are you, though? It was tragic. Let me stop you here. Tragic. Um, In a world where, what's his name? Country Bumpkin is Sexiest Man Alive. How surprised are you that this one is? You know, you know what's remember when Crash won the Oscar? But I, I, you know what? I will say this: Crash at least was better acted. Even the acting in the movie is poor. The cinematography is poor. Like the actual construction of the movie is poor. So aside from the content, I actually think the way the movie is put together is very bad. But I'm prepared for it to be feated because I think this is um, Hollywood's crazy way of trying to figure out how to make sense of Trumpers and how to humanize Trumpers. That's their, That's what I think is doing, happening in that, that way. For, we've been doing that for quite some time. We're going to be we've doing that doing, with the, the Roseanne yeah. revival. We'll, we, yes. Like I said, yeah. we did on the cover of People magazine. We were doing it all the time. Yeah. So I don't understand who thinks this movie's this sh- movie's brilliant. I've seen I've had a couple of battles online with people who thought it was the most original thing they've ever seen. Guess what? Evil is not original. But or admittedly evil is not original. But I'm just going to stop right there. It's I right. hate this movie with a passion. All right, I hate it. I just moving do. moving on. Uh, what have you? What have you? Are you okay? Um, I can't stop. I hate it so much. Um, <laughs> So what did you like, Trisha? <laughs> okay, now in contrast, I um I'm actually like my sister, we're all watching um my sister has to vote on the SAG Awards, so we're watching a bunch of movies together. And so the next one we watch, I adore. 
and it has its own problems with race. But somehow I was able to key in on it still too. Maybe because there wasn't a produced vitality as a sub story. But anyway, this one is Shape of Water. Absolutely fantastic. I'm was, huge... was my recommendation a couple of weeks ago. No, you didn't see Shape of Water, the movie? Yeah, I saw it. I mean, I, mean, I didn't <laughs> recommend it. I'm you sorry. I didn't recommend it. Go ahead. No, no, it's okay. I love Shape of Water. Shape of Water is the new um is a new movie from the director of Pan's Labyrinth, which I loved. Loved Pan's Labyrinth. This is a magical realism story. And in some ways, it's a beauty and the beast tale, which seems almost a little bit of like a, a throwback to like the monster movies of the 60s or the 70s. It's really well done. It's really interesting. I bought into it emotionally. I bought into the emotional stakes. There's some there's some there's some problematic tones because there are black people in it and it is a period piece, but I, I could work through that. Um, so, but it was very enjoyable, beautifully shot, well acted, but it is magical realism. People, I went to the that. premiere of that here, and the cast was there, and Guillermo del Toro, who is the director, was there. And hearing them talk about the movie uh, made me love it even more. The movie's fantastic. That's great. Guillermo del Toro, del Toro talk about the movie. It's a movie that he's had in his head since he was a little boy, since he saw Creature of the Black Lagoon. He sunk a million dollars of his own money into the film before it got picked up by the studio. He believes in the project so much. And watching him talk about it and cry on the panel, talking great. about it, you really get that kind of emotion from the film. Yeah. Like it's so it's clear. It's so clear that he loves this movie. Mm-hmm. Like every scene, you can, it's just so well constructed. The acting is stellar. Octavia Spencer was there and she talked about her role in the movie. This this picture takes place in the 60s and she was just talking about um, what the thing that you mentioned about being a black person. As she said, uh, you know, she's like, I played a maid. I mm-hmm. played a NASA scientist. And now I played a maid who works at NASA, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which I, I thought that was funny. Because, yeah, pretty much, right? She's just stuck in that time period. And it's black says, people in yeah, the time but she period. said that she felt like the character had depth. And yeah, she, she did. felt, yeah, and she felt like it wasn't just a throwaway diversity hire or anything like that she said like every part of the film every part in the film was so lovingly constructed and the overarching theme of just outsiders who outsiders in 1960s society you know a gay man a a mute woman and a black woman find some sort of commonality and purpose with this creature Mm -hmm. um it's just such a beautiful story you know what i'm signing on to this this is also my recommendation please go see shape of water it's uh one of my favorite things I've seen this year, really. It's you a know, flawless movie. It's, it's can, very near you can, flawless. You can actually sign on to a movie about flawed individuals mm-hmm. that's enjoyable instead of yeah. that shit show that they okay. tried to do with three billboards. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh I can't. I can't. I'm sorry. It's horrendous. And I'm so insulted that people think I should love this movie. I really am. <laughs> I'm really glad you had this reading recommendation because I didn't have a very strong one. So I'm I'm glad I was able to just steal yours. <laughs> but I will, I will, um, I won't have a, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'd recommend this to people, but uh, it's, I just want to put this out there. What I've been watching lately, the what? great British baking show. Oh, break off. Uh, has been on my TV. And uh, I just want to say, as you know, I do not enjoy food. Or eating. <laughs> it's just, it's not something that I clamor to do. Even less, I hate shows about food and eating. There was something about 
the way that this works that I really enjoy. Now, The Great British Bake Off is a reality TV show from England, and it's just like your standard cooking show. They have people who have to produce some sort of pastries, and the judges pick someone who wins and someone who loses who then leaves the show, and then at the end, someone is crowned the the best British baker or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. The thing that I enjoy about the show is that it's very different from American reality competition shows, whereas the contestants actually don't reference each other or talk about each other in any way during mm-hmm. the production, during the show. Mm-hmm. And if they do interact, it's usually to like share stuff or to compliment each other, mm-hmm. which is really different from like, say, Project Runway, where like every clip is someone saying like, her design sucks. <laughs> it is, it's the epitome of friendly competition. And I just, I really enjoy that aspect of it. The stuff that they're making, I mean, none of it looks appetizing, but that's, that's <laughs> just me. I'm like, I don't like to eat. You so, like, you like the execution of the show. I do love the execution of the show. I do, again, you know, media is instructive. This is how you can compete and support each other while competing and not Without be at each other's crazy. throats. Yeah. Yep. And I, I don't think we, we do that enough because winning and losing for us, uh, winning and losing in our culture means so much. Because the process can be so aggressive and violent, right? I know. That winning and losing becomes everything. But watching these people win and lose, first of all, they know when they lose because they take responsibility for the things they didn't they didn't do. And then everyone's crying for the winner and crying for the loser and everyone's hugging. <laughs> like it's just it's great. Uh, so if it's your jam, check it out. Please watch Shape of Water. And those are our media recommendations okay. with a very powerful anti-recommendation. I can't feel. So I'm so wait, so just I'm unclear how you felt <laughs> about that movie. Um so it's like three and a half stars or wow. negative stars. <laughs> it makes movie showing in the same theater like less palatable. Less palatable. It really does. And I, I might even I might even be offended by the actors in it. That's how bad it is. Oh my god. <laughs> So, um, we've reached the end of another episode. I wanted to know, uh, how was it? I heard it rained in LA the other day. Are you okay? Oh yeah, I'm fine. Um, I, where, you know, yeah, where it's happening is problematic. Um, it's further up North, you know, it's very muddy and even Oprah, our future presidential nominee, um, her house experienced some problems. It's Montecito, which is quite fancy and wealthy area of LA and um or los angeles county most likely um yeah it's it's basically mudslides happened so actually quite a few people died um but for us Holy it's okay shit. i know you know i'll tell you in california you only have four things to worry about air weather fire and water that's it those four <laughs> <laughs> once you get past those four you're fine I don't know why our sleep. systems are so poor here but yeah you know what it is our drainage system is the I don't know what it is. It's the pits. Well, it's you have all that Hollywood glitz, so there had to be a trade-off somewhere. <laughs> you think that's what it is? I, I think, think that's it. it. They were like, we can do drainage, or we can put, <laughs> spell the word Hollywood on the fucking hill. Let's do that. Oh, God. <laughs> all right. All right, my dear. Well, this has been delightful. Delightful. And I will talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. Bye, all. Bye.